Well, we've said this for a, as a church for two years now, and I don't get tired of saying it. Uh, we are a church that is declaring war on shallow Christianity, beginning with ourselves. We want to become a people who leave the shallow end of the swimming pool and become mature followers of Jesus. People who think more like Jesus, people who look more like Jesus, who act more like Jesus, who talk more like Jesus, where he influences everything in our lives. And the way we're doing that, if you're following on your notes, our mission to do that is to become disciples who make disciples. Become disciples who make disciples. We want to be disciples who love one another, love the Lord, and serve the world. But we first have to become disciples so we can go make disciples. And here's the hard truth that's going to get us into where we're going this morning. Here's the really hard truth about becoming a disciple who makes disciples. We usually grow the most as a disciple of Jesus when we're tested. The main way that our faith is grown is when we come to difficult situations in our life. And it's like that with a lot of things in life. I mean, think about it. I don't care whether it's running or biking or lifting weights or working out. It's on the other side of a difficult workout or a difficult situation when we have more faith that we can accomplish something. And it's just like that in our Christian life. On the other side of a test or a difficult situation lies a deeper trust in who Jesus is. If we're only in situations where we control everything, we can become pretty self-reliant. So God often uses what we consider seemingly impossible situations to test us and grow our faith because on the other side of testing lies a more mature faith. And it's during these times of testing that God strips away our idols, everything else we look to and believe in, and that keep us from trusting him wholeheartedly. If you're following in your notes, God often uses tests to grow our faith mature. He often uses tests to grow our faith mature. mature. We can read about this in the Bible. In James, which we studied last fall, Jesus' brother even writes these words. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials, which is the same word as tests, of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith de develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be what, friends? Mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And the reason that tests mature us as followers of Jesus, if you're following in your notes, it's during the tests that we see who or what we believe in. It's during the tests that we see who or what we believe in, whether we're going to believe in ourselves or whether we're going to believe and trust in Jesus. So if tests or exams measure how we're doing on a subject, and if our goal as followers of Jesus is to leave the shallow end of the pool and grow more mature, then after two and a half years, we're going to take a test today. And we're going to see how we're doing in growing from shallow to mature followers of Jesus. And to do that, we're going to look at a very familiar story in the Bible. It's called the Feeding of the 5,000. A lot of people would say it's their favorite story in the Bible. It's very popular. It's also one of the gospel writers' favorite stories. It's the only miracle other than the resurrection of Jesus to appear in all four gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John must have thought this was a pretty important event to record. And so I'm excited to teach it. I'm excited we get to learn together because I think God really wants to teach us something in this 
story today. And my hope, my hope at the end of the day, and you'll be given time to do this, is to gauge ourselves where we are on the spectrum of growing from shallow to mature based on how we're doing in trusting God and what we're putting in his hands. So that's where we're going. If you would open your Bible, we're going to get right into it. Open your Bible to John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have red Bibles in the seat back in front of you. We have a few different versions of that Bible out there, so it's going to be around page 750. But we're in John chapter 6, verse 1. Before we look at the two encounters and the story of the feeding of the 5,000, I just want to give you the context of where this story takes place. It always helps me to know where it's taking place and what's going on before I actually get into it. So in verse 1, if you're following along in your Bible, we start with this. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. And so last week, Jeff talked about Jesus confronting the Pharisees and their refusing to believe that he was the Messiah. That took place in Jerusalem about six months before this story that we're looking at today. And so Jesus has left Jerusalem in the region called Judea, and he's headed back north, you can see it on a map on the screen, to a region called Galilee, where Jesus is actually from. And they're in a little town. Luke 9 tells us it's, it's Bethsaida, which is on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee towards the top of the map there. So we're in Bethsaida, and we're told it takes place on a mountain where Jesus went up. And you can see a picture of what that might look like today. That is the plains of Bethsaida. So Jesus is up on this hillside, and the multitudes are coming to him right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And so we're told in, chapter th in verse 3, then Jesus went up on a mountainside like that and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, would you read this in your first gray box on your notes? Jesus said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And right away, we see our first encounter, and it's with one of Jesus' own disciples named Philip. And we see the problem that is taking place and shaping up right at the beginning of the story. We're told that a great crowd is coming toward them. And in verse 10, we'll get there, but in verse 10 it tells us that there was 5,000 men in the crowd. That's not counting women and children, so some scholars believe there could have been 20,000 people in the crowd that day. So there is a crowd of 20,000 people following Jesus solely because they like to see the signs and miracles that he's doing, not because they want to obey his teaching. And so they're following Jesus, and the problem is they're hungry. And there doesn't seem to be food for all of them. So Jesus asks Philip a very straightforward, simple question. He says, Philip, where are we going to buy bread for these people to eat? And we're told in verse 6, this isn't a question for information, but a question to test Philip and whether he trusted Jesus. John, uh, John even tells us this. Jesus asked this only to test him. Jesus didn't expect Philip to buy the bread. In fact, Jesus knew Philip couldn't answer the question. 
His question was clearly designed to confront Philip with a situation that had no human solution. Jesus put Philip in a tough situation, seemingly impossible in Philip's eyes, to test his faith. And so let's step back from this story for just one minute, right? Um, Jesus has just asked Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all these people? We don't have enough to feed them. Philip has followed Jesus for two years now. We're told in the beginning verses of this story, it was during the Passover. It's the second Passover of Jesus' ministry. The first was during the cleansing of the temple. This is the second. The third is when Jesus will enter Jerusalem to die. So Philip has followed Jesus for two years. He's seen unbelievable things. He's seen water turned into wine at Cana. He saw a Samaritan woman come to faith in Jesus and change her whole town by telling them about him. He has seen a royal official's son healed. He has seen a paralyzed person take up their mat and walk by a pool. He's seen unbelievable things. And if you're following on your notes, after two years, Jesus wanted to know if Philip trusted him. He's seen all these things, but he wants to know if Philip trusts him. And Jesus does the same thing to us. We're tested so our faith can grow. And perhaps this morning, you feel like you are in a situation which has no apparent solution. I don't know what it might be for you. Finances, your marriage, your kids, an adoption, family, pain, loss, grief, an addiction. Your pain, your test might be loving someone who's difficult to love. You're in the middle of a difficult test, and you have a decision to make. And so Jesus asked Philip a very simple question. Where are we going to buy bread? A simple question with huge implications. And in verse 7, we see Philip's answer to the test. Philip answered Jesus. Eight months' wages would not be enough to buy bread for each one to have a little bite. And it's at this point in the story where you say, come on, Philip, come on, man. You've seen him do this stuff. What kind of answer is that? Notice, Philip didn't even answer Jesus' question. Jesus asked him to consider the ways of supply. Where are we going to buy the bread? And Philip responded with what he perceived as the bigger question, who's going to provide it? He didn't even answer the question. Jesus asked Philip if he trusted him, and Philip failed the test. He failed the test. And if you're following in your notes, the reason he failed the test is because instead of trusting Jesus, Philip focused on his circumstances, his situation, and his abilities. Instead of trusting Jesus, Philip focused on his circumstances, his situation, and his abilities. Philip should have answered this way. He should have said, Jesus, I don't know how these people are going to eat. I don't know how we're going to get the bread, but you can do anything. I've seen you do unbelievable things. You do it. Tell me what to do. Tell me to get them in line. I'll line them up. You tell me where to get the bread. I'll go get it. But he didn't. Philip, Philip went straight to logic. We don't have enough money to buy bread. And don't hear me say logic's a bad thing. I, I think logic, I love logic. But when it comes before our faith, it is a bad thing. And so Philip 
Philip relies on his logic and he stressed the impossibility of the situation in his eyes and he revealed the insufficiency of his faith. Philip looked at his circumstances, his situation, and his abilities and his response was, it can't be done, Jesus. It can't be done. It's hopeless. And I think a lot of times we're more like Philip than we probably want to admit. Maybe we identify with Philip right now and instead of looking at Jesus and putting the problem in his hands, we first look at our own circumstances, our own situation, and our own abilities, and we say it's hopeless, and we, stalish, and we stay at the shallow end of the swimming pool, and we don't grow up in our faith. And beginning in verse 8, this is where the story takes a turn, we're going to see a contrast in how to handle a test or a seemingly impossible situation, and it comes in an encounter with a little boy. And so I'm going to begin in verse 8. I'm going to ask you to join me in verse 9 on the notes. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Would you read this with me? Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus took the loaves gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, and he did the same with the fish. So before we get to the little boy, just look at Andrew real quick. This is Peter's brother, another one of the disciples. At least he's out looking around on where they can get some fish, and he brings this little boy with a lunch, and he says, hey, Jesus, I found this little boy. He has some food, and then I wish he would have just closed his mouth, but he goes on and he says, but how far will that go among so many? Andrew, maybe he gets a C or a D. I mean, Philip failed it. Maybe Andrew gets a C or a D. But at least he brought a boy with five small barley loaves of bread and two small fish. And John goes to great detail to tell us what kind of bread this is, barley bread. And here's just a, a little thing. When you're reading the Bible and there are details in there, stop and ask why they're there. Nothing's in the Bible by mistake. The writers are very specific with the words they use. So just when you read your Bible on your own, look at what the words they're using mean. And so he says the boy brought barley bread. Barley was the cheapest of all breads, and it was held in contempt by people that had more. Barley bread was known as the bread of the very poor. And Jesus uses this food of the poor because he wanted his disciples and he wants us to see that no matter what we have, even the most menial thing, if we give it to him, he can use it to grow our faith. And the fishes he brought for lunch. I don't know what goes in your mind. I don't know if you think of like some walleye or muskie from Wisconsin. We're probably talking sardines. The boy had two pickled little fish to help the dry bread go down. His lunch was as insignificant as could be. And Jesus took it, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he used it to feed 20,000 people. And if you're following in your notes, the little boy didn't look at his circumstances, his situation, or his abilities. He trusted Jesus. He didn't look at what was going on around him. He trusted Jesus. And he put the bread and he put the fish in Jesus' hands and Jesus did more with it than anyone could possibly have imagined. The little boy who doesn't even have a name 
is the one who passed the test. And I wonder what that little boy thought that day. I wonder if he never forgot what happened. And when he came to other difficult situations in his life, he looked back and he said, you know what? I, Jesus did that with five loaves of bread and two fish that I gave him. He can do anything. And I wonder, I wonder what the disciples thought down the road when we're told that Jesus says this to his disciples, I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. I wonder if in their minds they thought, you know what, he's talking about the little boy with five loaves and two little fish. I wonder what went through their minds. Because that's the faith God wants. That's the faith that gets in the, the deep end of the pool. It's faith, that, it's faith just like a child. My, my boys trust me. They believe me if I tell them something. They believe I can do it. And God wants our faith to be that way. We can trust him. He can do it. He's big enough. And that's the type of faith that will get us into the kingdom of heaven. Faith in what his son, Jesus Christ, did on the cross. We believe it. Jesus uses this poor little boy with the poorest food. And what Jesus shows us in this encounter, if you're following in your notes, the insufficient from the insignificant become sufficient and significant when placed in the hands of Jesus. Let me say that again. That is a mouthful. The insufficient from the hands of the insignificant become sufficient and significant when placed in the hands of Jesus. If you will take whatever you have, no matter how small or how great it might be, and you place it in the hands of Jesus, you will find that it is more than sufficient for whatever test you're going through, whatever problem you have, whatever decision you have to make, or whatever he asks you to do. And without fail, I can guarantee this, if you place whatever you have in the hands of Jesus, your faith will grow because on the other side of a test lies a more mature faith. And if that is the goal of life, to grow in Christ and become more and more like Jesus, then we need to put what we have in Jesus' hands so he can grow our faith. We can learn a lot from a little boy who was poorer than poor and humbly came to Jesus. He said, Jesus, I don't have much. I got five barley loaves of bread and two fish. You do with it what you want. And he passed the test. He passed the test. And, and so after studying this week, and this was, this is, was a hard week of study, um, I tried to think of reasons why, why Philip didn't trust Jesus and why the little boy did trust Jesus and relate that to why we don't sometimes trust Jesus and put things in his hands. And, and I narrowed it down to two, two issues of why I think we don't trust Jesus with what's going on in our lives. And so if you're following along in your notes, the first issue is that we have a small view of God and we question God's goodness. We have a small view of God and we question God's goodness. Let's stick with little kids for a minute. Do you remember the prayer that you, you all used to pray when you were growing up and maybe your kids say around the, the dinner table right now? You can help me out with it. It says, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Let's get rid of the food part for just right now. Maybe what we need to learn about God can be found in the first two lines of a children's prayer. God is great and God is good. And so what we see in Philip, 
is that Philip, again, he'd seen unbelievable things. But catch this, catch this. When it came to the problem in Philip's life, he didn't think Jesus could do anything about it. These are the words that might have been going on in Philip's mind. God, I know you've worked in other people's situations. I'm just not sure you can work in mine. I'm not sure you're big enough to handle my problem, God. And just like Philip, when we look to Jesus first, and when we don't look to Jesus first, when we look to our situation, our circumstances, our abilities, we trust in ourselves and not God. We frequently make our problems bigger and we make our God smaller. We say, God, I don't trust you. I've got this one on my own. And it's in those moments we fail the test, we keep our problems in our own hands, and we live in the shallow end of the pool as followers of Jesus. So maybe you've said these words before, or you're saying them today. God, I've seen you provide for other families. I just don't trust you can do it for mine. So I'm just going to keep this to myself. God, I've seen you heal other marriages I just don't trust that you can work in mine. You don't know my wife, God. I married crazy. <laughs> you can't work in my marriage, God. You're not big enough. You can't do it. God, I know other people have struggled in their workplace, and it got better, but I don't think you can make any difference in mine. God, I know we're supposed to adopt, but I don't trust that you're going to provide the means to make it happen. So even though we think we should do it, we can't afford it, and we're not going to do it. It's an impossible situation. God, I know I'm supposed to go on a mission trip or serve somewhere, but there's no way you can use someone like me. No way. So I won't go. God, I know you want me to go talk to my neighbor, the one you don't like, but I don't think it would make a difference anyway, so I'm not going to go do it. You're not big enough to be in that conversation anyway. God, I know you've helped other people overcome addictions. I'm just not convinced you can really help me overcome mine, so I'm just going to work harder on my own at overcoming it. God, I've seen other people get healthier, but this is just the hand I've been dealt. I don't trust you can do anything about my body or my situation. God, I've seen you provide peace for other people going through incredible pain and grief and loss and depression, but you don't know my pain, God. I'm just going to keep it to myself instead of trusting you with it. You're not big enough to take away my pain and give me peace. If we're honest, we all sometimes make our problems bigger and our God smaller. A.W. Tozer was an author that lived in the early 1900s. And he wrote a book called Knowledge of the Holy. He writes this in that book. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if Tozer's right, if he's right, this single belief, our belief about who God is, it defines everything in our lives. It's the starting point for almost every decision we'll ever make. How we view God determines whether we'll trust him or trust ourselves. It determines whether we'll put our problems in the hands of Jesus or keep our fists closed around our own issues. Nothing is too big for God to handle. Whatever you're struggling with, you can put it in his hands. And moreover, 
You can know that if God has placed something in your life for a test, he has done it in order so that your faith might grow and so that others might see him glorified in you and the gospel of Jesus Christ can advance. He is a great God and he's a good God. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8.28, would you read this with me? It says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. We have a good God, friends. When you read the Bible, you discover the story of the scriptures is the story of a faithless world being redeemed and rescued by a faithful, good God. If you ever question God's goodness, please listen. If you ever question God's goodness, look at the cross. Look to the cross and look to the hands that have nail holes in them because he went to the cross to die for you. Don't ever question God's goodness. Look to the cross. We have a good God. We can trust him. He is big enough. John Ortberg, a pastor in California, he says this, When we shrink God, we pray without faith. We worship without awe. We serve without joy, we suffer without hope, and the result is a life of stagnation and fear, a loss of vision, an inability to persevere and see things through. That's why the writers of Scripture never tire of telling us that we do not have a little God. Whatever we need, God is bigger. Whatever our weakness, God is stronger. And can I just say something really practical about this? Life is better when we trust God. Life is just better when we put our hands in Jesus and we don't exhaust ourselves by working harder and harder trying to fix our own problems. Life is just better. I don't want to pray without faith. I don't want to worship without awe. I don't want to serve without joy. I don't want to suffer without hope. And I don't want to live a life of stagnation and fear. That doesn't sound good to me. But that's what happens when we don't put our issues, our problems, our tests, our decisions in the hands of Jesus and we keep them to ourselves. That's what life turns into. Life is better with Jesus. And the second reason that we don't trust, and, and again, hear me say this. I think that these two are autobiographical. I mean, that's why I chose them. They're autobiographical, and the second reason why I think we don't trust is, if you're following your notes, that God may ask us to do something costly, uncomfortable, or inconvenient. God may ask us to do something costly, uncomfortable, or inconvenient. Sometimes we don't put things in God's hands because we're afraid he may ask us to do something we want to do or give up something we don't want to give up. The little boy who brought five loaves and two fish, and he said, Jesus, here you go, you use it. Do you know the only thing that little boy knew at the time he handed his fish over? Here's what he knew. He just gave away his lunch. That's all he knew. He didn't know how God was going to use it. He didn't know if he was going to have something to eat. It was costly. It was uncomfortable, and it was certainly inconvenient. But Jesus used this little boy to be part of the miracle. And this is what I want you to see today. When we put things in God's hands, he frequently asks us to be part of the miracle. 
He wants us to be part of the miracle. When we ask God to do the impossible, he usually instructs us to do something costly, uncomfortable, or inconvenient, and sometimes all three. And I think that's because when we're part of the miracle, we're invested, we're putting, we're putting our problem in Jesus' hands, and he is growing our faith. And here's the truth. Sometimes it's just easier to stay where we are and keep going on with life with our hands grasping onto our own problems than it is to put our problems in the hands of Jesus. So when we put our finances in Jesus' hands, Jesus might ask us to start living on a budget or to take a financial peace university class. When you put your finances in Jesus' hands, he may ask you to actually give your money away. It's costly. It's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. When we put our marriage in Jesus' hands, he might show you that you're the one that needs to change. You need to be the first one to say sorry. You might need to get involved in a marriage class or a mentoring ministry. You might need to go to marriage counseling. It's costly. It's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. Jesus wants you to be part of the miracle. Because a deeper faith lies at the other side of the test. When we put our workplace in Jesus' hands, he might lead you to another job or he might leave you right where you are so you can be an encouragement and a light in a dark environment. When you put adoption in Jesus' hands and you say, God, I can't possibly afford this and what difference is adopting one kid when there's 160 million orphans in the world? God may actually ask you to adopt. And I can tell you from firsthand experience going through an adoption right now, it is costly it is inconvenient, and it is uncomfortable. And there are many days where I live in the shallow end of the pool, and I just complain, or I don't want to wait. But on the other side of the test, God is growing my faith, and he's growing Sarah's faith, but he wants us to be part of the miracle. When you put a mission trip in Jesus' hands, or serve somewhere in Jesus' hands, he might actually ask you to go on a trip. We just had a team get back from Thailand, and it cost them a lot of money. It cost them time off work and time away from family. It was costly, uncomfortable, and inconvenient, and some of the stories I'm hearing are incredible. You'll get to listen to them on May 20th if you want to come to a lunch, but you'll hear stories of how on the other side of the test that they didn't think they had anything to offer, God grew their faith. When you put your neighbor in Jesus' hands, God may actually make you go over and talk to him the one you don't like. When you put an addiction in Jesus' hands, he might lead you to confess your addiction and your sin to your family, and he might lead you to get help in a recovery group. I think of John Voights, who stood on this stage two weeks ago. And he said when everything changed is when he looked to Jesus instead of trying to control his own problems. What John did in getting help was costly, uncomfortable, and inconvenient, but God has used John in more ways than he ever could have imagined. When you put your health in Jesus' hands, he might ask you to make a lifestyle change. He might ask you to start eating better, or start working out, or join a gym, because God wants you to be part of the miracle. Listen, we could just pray, God, would you heal my health concern, and I believe he can do it. I really do. But frequently, he says, what actions are you going to take to join me in the miracle? Because on the other side of the tough decision and test lies a deeper faith in Jesus. 
When we put our pain and brokenness in Jesus' hands, it may seem like we have nothing to offer. Offer him nothing. Your nothing plus Jesus can equal everything. God can give you that peace that surpasses understanding. And here's what's costly, uncomfortable, and inconvenient. He may ask you to use your pain and hurt to minister to others going through the same thing. If you allow him on the other side of your test is a deeper faith, a more mature faith in Jesus. I would say most of us would say we want, to, we want God to work in our lives, but are we willing to do what he asks after we've put our problem in his hands? And what I want to say to you today is don't let these two reasons stop you from trusting Jesus. He is big enough. He has our good in mind. And he will provide our every need if he asks us to do something. He will provide. Let's wrap up by looking at verses 12 to 15. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to, who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the fourth sign in the Gospel of John. We've talked about signs in the past. This is the fourth one. And in verses 1 and 2, when we started today, we saw that the crowds were swelling. They were growing because they wanted to see more miraculous signs. Not obey, not follow Jesus as a disciple, but to see miraculous signs. And now in 14 and 15, we read that the crowd recognized that Jesus was a special person. Maybe even the Messiah, maybe their Savior. But they had in mind what kind of Savior Jesus was going to be for them. They wanted a Savior who would meet all their physical needs. And food and health were at the top of the list. They were eager to trust Jesus when he gave them what they wanted. And so maybe we can put ourselves in the crowd for just a few minutes this morning. Maybe this is a third encounter in the story. Sometimes when we put things in God's hands, this is the hard truth. We put things in his hands because we want to get something out of Jesus. We want him to do exactly what we tell him to do. We want it to go how we think it should go. And the hard truth of the, is that sometimes when we put things in God's hands, the cancer spreads. And sometimes when we put things in God's hands, the marriage feels more lonely. And sometimes when we put things in God's hands, the finances get tighter or the kids get more distant. And it's in those times that Jesus says, you can trust me. I'm big enough. I have what's best for you in mind. I've got you. Put your hand in mine. Trust me. And that's where mature faith is really, really difficult. And one of the questions that helps us get to that mature faith, if you're following on your notes, is will we still trust Jesus when we don't get the answer we want? Will we still trust Jesus when we don't get the answer we want? Are we okay if we don't see the material blessing and Jesus doesn't answer our prayer the way we want it answered? 
Let me say, sometimes we see the material blessing, just like this story where 20,000 people were fed. I absolutely believe Jesus still answers prayer. He still heals people. He still provides exactly what we ask for sometimes. But other times, the blessing is that we have more mature faith on the other side of the test, period. And are we okay with that? Are we okay with that? I think the question behind that question, if we want to peel that question back just a little bit, do we really believe that God knows what's best for us? Do we believe he's a sovereign, great, good God who knows what we need? Do we really believe that God knows what's best for us? Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. I love the New Living translation of that verse. It says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. God could give us everything we want, anytime he wants, but that honestly isn't in our best interest. His main interest is that we would grow in our faith to become more and more like Jesus Christ, and by giving us everything we want, that would not happen. We'd be spoiled brats. And just like the crowd, we'd be interested in the signs and the miracles and not the one behind the signs and the miracles. Every year around September, I set up a tent at the end of our street right next to our mailbox to try to intercept the worst piece of mail that comes throughout the entire year. It is the Toys R Us gift catalog. I, I try to intercept that every year. And this year, for some reason, I didn't make it home in time, and I walked in from work, and my six-year-old named Ben is sitting at the kitchen table with a red Sharpie circling everything he wants. So I, after he did that, I, I figured, you know what? I'm going to add this up and see how much this Christmas list is going to cost me. It was over $20,000. <laughs> First of all, I couldn't even, I couldn't give that to him. But that's not in his best interest. That's not what's best for him. He'd love me for what I can give him, not because I'm his dad. And God wants us to love him. He wants us to trust him, to look to him for who he is, not what he can give us. Listen, he's already given us his son, it's the greatest gift we could ever be given. And his son went to the cross to die for our sins. We don't need anything else. Are you okay with that? Really? Are you okay with that? He knows what's best for us. And so the question on the exam this morning, I hope there's a teacher here, because if, if I was a teacher, I'd give one question test. So maybe this will rub off on you, on your students. They'll love you for it. The question on the exam this morning. What do you need to put in Jesus' hands today? If you're following your notes, what do you need to put in Jesus' hands today? And for followers of Jesus here in this room, I want to talk to two groups of people first. For followers of Jesus in this room, I don't know what that might be for you. It might be your finances, your marriage, your work, an adoption, serving somewhere, a mission trip, an addiction. It might be your school if you're a student. 
Your neighbor, your pain, your grief, your loss, your health, your mouth, and the way you use it. Maybe it's your attitude towards other people. And the way to pass these tests is to see your absolute inability to do anything on your own. You need to simply come to God and say, I don't have the resources or the answers, but you do. So I give it to you, Jesus. I trust you. I look to you. I put it in your hands, and I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And on the other side of the test lies a more mature faith. I can promise you that. So what do you need to put in Jesus' hands today? Don't stay in the shallow end of the pool. And can I talk directly with anybody here today who's not a follower of Jesus? I am so thankful you're here. I really am thankful you're here. But I need you to know this. If you have a seemingly impossible test or problem in your life right now, I don't know what to say to you. All these promises that God will provide for your every need and that he can use your life in a way that you can't even imagine, those promises are not for you. Because you have to have faith in Jesus Christ to receive them. Maybe God will use your insurmountable problem to be the moment in your life where you say, I don't want to do this anymore on my own, God. I need you. I put my life in your hands. And here's the good news for you. This is why I'm so thankful you're here. No matter what you've done, no matter what sins you've committed, God will forgive you today if you say you're sorry for that sin. You turn from it and go the other way, and you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The entire gospel, the whole reason we're studying John for a year, is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. That's why we're studying this. So for somebody here, maybe today is the day when you put your life in Jesus' hands. Notice the nail holes. He took those for you. He took them for you, and in response, maybe today is the day you put your life back in his hands. But we're going to create a little bit of space here for three or four minutes. Because in this busy world, I, I'm, I know I don't do this. I just keep going and I keep going and I keep going and I try to do things on my own. And I don't slow down enough to actually put things in Jesus' hands. So we're going to give you a few minutes this morning where you can talk to God. And maybe you can answer the question on the exam. What do you need to put in Jesus' hands today. And I'll close this in prayer in just a minute. But I, I really want you to think about that this morning. God, we come to you this morning with five barley loaves of bread and two fish. Some of, some of us may come with even less than that. And so God, we put whatever is going on in our life in your hands, knowing that you are great enough, knowing that you are good enough, knowing that you will provide for everything we need to get through our test. And God, we pray that you would increase our faith so that down the road we can look back at where you provided and where our faith matured. And we can have moments like the disciples where we, where we say, surely he is the son of God. We can trust him. God, we pray you'd increase our faith. 
but we give what we have to you. And would you do more with it than we can possibly ask or imagine, even if it's not the answer we want? Would you do more with it than we can possibly ask or imagine? And would you do it all for your name, for your glory, for your renown, for your fame, for your gospel, so that more people can know you as Savior and Lord? God, we give to you our barley bread and fish. You do with it what you want. It's in Jesus' strong, saving name we pray. Amen.